Okay, so I will print more next time. I apologize. I only printed 50. So next time will be two weeks from now. Also, as a reminder, tomorrow's Mass will be at 7.30 in the morning. Um, because next week we will be doing, instead of this, Father Kevin Borlon will be doing his Lenten mission. So, uh, discernment of spirits. Uh, you see on your heading that the source material for this is taken from Father Timothy Gallagher's book called Discernment of Spirits. Go figure. Um, it's a wonderful little book. I mean, I couldn't recommend it more. Uh, for the laity especially. It's very easy to read and it's very relatable. He plugs in a lot of stories that will draw upon um, within the book that we can relate to uh, experientially. So, discernment of spirits. What is it? This is something that St. Ignatius of Loyola came up with whenever he started to discern his own experience of the Lord. So whenever Ignatius was a soldier, and just Ignatius, not saint, he got into a horrible um, wound, battle wound, that cooped him up where he was given basically two kinds of literature. One of them was romance novels, essentially, of knights and uh, soldiers just kind of wooing women and what he found when he read those books was that they gave him an intense delight you know think of maybe sitting on your couch and watching a really good action movie but then the moment that he put down the book or the moment that the action movie ended his delight ended and so he ended with a greater hunger and a thirst for, you know, the next good thing. He just felt himself very empty after consuming that kind of literature. But he was also given at his bedside a certain edition of the lives of the saints. And whenever he would read the lives of the saints, he was very inspired by their valor and uh, their courage, but also by just their holiness. And whenever he would put down the book with the lives of the saints, he realized that his heart was still lifted up to God and that he was still considering the lives of the saints. It couldn't leave him, but it lifted his heart to higher things. It didn't just excite his lower passions, that his lower passions would just leave him to guilt. And so he begins to formulate what we call the discernment of spirits. So for today, we're going to go through rules one through four. There are 14 in total. And formally, what the discernment of spirits were was part of Ignatius's big conversion was that he went out and uh, lived basically as a hermit for a while. And this was so influential for him that everyone who joined his society, later known as the Society of Jesus or the Jesuits, had to make a 30-day silent retreat. And these 14 rules 
were given to the retreatants as a way for them to be able to navigate their own experience. That is, and for the director, those directing the retreatants, so that they would know how the Holy Spirit interacted with them and how the devil interacted with them. And so that in understanding that experience, they could take action based off of what the Holy Spirit or what the devil was doing in their life. So, um, in a word, why the discernment of spirits? Because the persons so aided by the discernment of spirits are increasingly enabled to make spiritual sense out of their experience. And so that way, they're able to live more attuned to the Lord's will in their life. This is the goal of all discernment. And so, um, Timothy Gallagher gives us, Father Timothy Gallagher, gives us three things of what to do, just generally in the spiritual life. First, be aware. Secondly, understand. And thirdly, take action accept or reject within be aware this is why the phone and just useless noise has become such an enemy to the spiritual life i cannot be aware of what is within if i'm always living without i just can't so one of the things that timothy points out is that we are always drawn without toward what our senses can grasp. It's a lot easier to be drawn without. It's more accustomed to the animals to be drawn without, just a sensory experience. It's much more angelic and it's much higher in man to be drawn within. And so that awareness is incredibly important to cultivate. What used to be the soul where we used to recollect has now become the smartphone where we recollect. And so to be able to more and more put down the phone and recollect and be aware within ourselves is important so that we can know how it is that the good spirit, and when I'm talking about this, you can almost think about the old cartoons, you know, like the good spirit, the angel on your shoulder, and the evil spirit, you know, the devil on your shoulder. We need to be able to to be aware of that, but the simplest way to do that is just to watch our screen time. And then after doing that, to understand, and this is where we learn to understand what it is um, that the good spirit, the evil spirit is um, putting on our hearts. And then thirdly, just to take action. So whenever we notice that it is the good spirit that's stirring us to an action, we do that action. And when we notice that it's the evil spirit pulling us away from the Lord, then we reject that movement. And we don't negotiate with it. We don't negotiate with the devil. So, with that being said, so that we can be aware and understand how it is that the good spirit and the evil spirit work in us, let's talk about the first kind of persons in the first rule that Ignatius gives. The first kind of persons for Ignatius are those who are going from mortal sin to mortal sin. That is, for in the first two rules, says that the good spirit and the evil spirit act in a particular way for those who go to mortal sin to mortal sin, and they act in another way 
for those who are persevering in the service of God. And so for him, there's really like, there's two classes of people. I'm either striving to persevere in the service of God, I'm going from mortal sin to mortal sin. So that's important. So what is it that the enemy ordinarily does from those who go from mortal sin to mortal sin? And persons who are going from mortal sin to mortal sin, the enemy is ordinarily accustomed to propose apparent pleasures to them, leading them to imagine sensual delights and pleasure in order to hold them more and make them grow in their vices and sins. In these persons, the Good Spirit uses a contrary method, stinging and biting their consciences through the rational power of moral judgment. So, if you've noticed, while the person is in mortal sin, what the evil spirit do is appeal to pleasure and not to truth. And then what the good spirit will do is appeal to truth, but then kind of rob of pleasure. And so, in a person going from mortal sin to mortal sin, for um, their conscience, it stings them, and the devil proposes, makes things seem even more appealing than they are. So, to break it down, Timothy points out that he opposes apparent pleasures, leading them to imagine sensual delights, so that the enemy works on our imagination whenever we are in mortal sin. Our imagination, again, always imagines things better than they are, like the drink is more appealing than it is, the phone is more appealing than it is, um, the, you know, the um, half gallon of mint chocolate chip in uh, the freezer, it's actually floating just in the fridge with a nice little radiance around it, you know, like this is what the enemy is accustomed to do, that it kind of, he dresses um, our imagination uh, in these earthly things. And it fills, fills the imagination with sensual delights and pleasures. As St. Augustine says in his confession, in my youth, I burned to get my fill of evil things. In my youth, I burned to get my fill of evil things. Just heart was inflamed with the next thing that the empire of Rome had to offer him. And so it's noteworthy that the enemy works like this. He woos us towards good things and not evil actions, but however, good earthly things. So where we can be obsessed with a good earthly thing, like I'm obsessed with, you know, the next, I'm, I'm thinking about, again, the floating mint chocolate chip, you know, in the, uh, in the freezer. And then, whenever my conscience kicks in and says, but you gave up ice cream and sweets for Lent, and it's also a Friday, what happens? You start to have a little bit of hatred towards your conscience. You start to have some hatred towards God. And so, 
this is what the devil will do. And if he can get us to where we're so infatuated with those love of earthly things to where the conscience bites and stings that much harder, well, they'll just use the earthly thing that I already love to silence my conscience. And so it becomes a cycle. And because the reality is, is that earthly desire always multiplies earthly desire. One drink leads to two, two to three, three to self-indulgence. Self-indulgence then leads to sloth, sloth leads to lust, etc., etc. And the enemy will woo the heart because he knows that our mind will tell us otherwise. He would, not ra- he would not negotiate with us mentally, but rather get us so attached to earthly things that it makes it burdensome to live the gospel. Not illogical, but just too burdensome to live the gospel. He goes on saying that the good spirit stings and bites our conscience through the rational power of moral judgment. So in persons entrenched in serious sins, the good spirit works on the mind. But what's important to know is that the stinging and biting conscience is a gift from God. The good spirit arises a sense of trouble in them, awakening them to their need for spiritual renewal and their unhappy condition. The good spirit actually makes us realize just how miserable we are whenever we are in sin. That's the work of the good spirit. Quoting Augustine again, he says, I was in torment. Augustine is trapped in sexual sin, by the way. I was in torment, reproaching myself more bitterly than ever as I twisted and turned in my chain. And you, O Lord, never ceased to watch over my secret heart. In your stern mercy, you lashed me with the twin scourge of fear and shame. Augustine experienced from the good spirit fear and shame towards his sin. In case I should give way once more, and the worn and slender remnant of my chain should not be broken, but gain new strength and bind me all the faster. And so the good spirit will use fear and shame, but it's a fear of hell, and it's a shame recognizing our dignity. It's a shame recognizing who we are made to be. It's not a fear and shame that is simply destructive. And so what happens to us when we are um, a, a person going from mortal sin to mortal sin, and this is a person, again, going from mortal sin to mortal sin. This isn't someone who is just occasionally falling into a mortal sin. This is a person who God has to stop and basically say, slow down, you are going 60 miles in the wrong 60 miles an hour in the wrong direction. Questions such as this will arise in us. 
Are you really happy living this way? Can you continue to live in such inner emptiness? Is not life meant to be more than this? Why do you hurt those who love and need you, living the way that you do? In your deepest heart, you yearn for fulfillment that you cannot find living this way. Why will you not seek it where it can be found? And as life draws to its end, will you be happy to look back on the life you are leading now? All of these questions are from the good spirit, the voice of God, that leads us to ask those deeper questions about where our life is headed. And so though they are uh, painful and deep and difficult to confront, especially while we are going from mortal sin to mortal sin, they are the ordinary means that God will use. It is significant that this timeless teaching from St. Ignatius is still given to us. Because now we live in an era of Christianity that kind of ignores the biblical truth that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That the Lord can use this fear of hell and this fear of sin and the shame that it causes to cause our conversion so as to be the beginning of wisdom. And so finally, Timothy Gallagher quotes um, the famous poem, The Hound of Heaven. Is my gloom, after all, the shade of his hand, outstretched caressingly? What this line in the poem is basically saying is that maybe my misery, maybe my sadness when I'm in sin is actually God's mercy. He says, when people who have lived at length without God begin to see that their gloom, their anguished sense of emptiness and failure in life, is, does not indicate that God has rejected them, but actually their gloom, their misery, is itself the surest sign that God has never ceased to love them and to call them to himself then something profoundly happy occurs within them. And so the challenge is to accept the shame and sadness caused by this moral judgment on my actions and to move forward. That's just difficult. For context, I mean, a a great visual of this is just watching the movie Pinocchio. Um, Pinocchio goes on Pleasure Island from pleasure to pleasure. He's smoking a cigar, he's got a drink, he, you know, they're shooting pool. They're going from thing to thing. And then who has been his friend the whole movie except for On Pleasure Island? It's Jiminy Cricket, who is on his shoulder. And Jiminy Cricket is the one who keeps on getting shut up um, by Pinocchio. But eventually, there is this shift that happens once Jimmy Cricket goes, and then Pinocchio starts to become like all the other little boys um, on the island, becomes like a donkey. You know, his image and his his image and likeness is defaced. You know, as he goes uh, on Pleasure Island, and so a similar thing happens to us in Rule One. But in the second rule, this is the opposite kind of person. 
The second, Ignatius says, in persons who are going on intensely purifying their sins and rising from good to better in the service of God our Lord. The method is contrary to that in the first rule. For then it is proper to the evil spirit to bite, sadden, and place obstacles, disquieting with false reasons, so that the person may not go forward. And it is proper to the good spirit to give courage and strength, consolations, tears, inspirations, and quiet, easing and taking away all obstacles, so that the person may go forward in doing good. So let's break it down. The evil spirit and the person that is going on intensely purifying their sins. So this is a person pursuing the Lord. Likes to bite in a way that unsettles us. So the enemy's tactic is not to move the person who is going from good to better to sin, not just to outright tempt them, but to slow them down and to discourage them, giving a gnawing or biting action that triggers a sense of anxiety, diminishing their peace, and undermining their delight in God's service. So it can begin something like this. We start off our Lenten penance. We're going to say, I'm going to pray a rosary every day. Then we start to pray a rosary, and all of a sudden, we start to have a little bit of anxiety towards it. It can look like, well, I don't know if I have enough time to pray this rosary right now. Or, I don't know if I'm actually doing it with good intention at all. Or, I feel like I should be praying it so much better. All of these anxious questions that usually don't get answered usually just lead us to one conclusion. Maybe I shouldn't really be praying the rosary. It's like this is something that the devil will do often, is just give us all these doubtful leads, this biting, anxious, gnawing action. And it's something that while we can understand what he's doing, we don't have to understand why exactly it is. As Timothy Gallagher says, once we understand that this is a movement of the evil spirit, we just reject it. We just dismiss it and we press forward. And so, um, unawareness of the biting action, Timothy says, will prevent us in rising from good to better. He quotes um, Ignatius's letter to St. Teresa Rejadel. The enemy is leading you into error, but not in any way to make you fall into a sin that would separate you from God our Lord. He tries rather to upset you and to interfere with your service of God and your peace of mind. So think about that as the order of operations, that the devil wants to ruin our peace of mind first if we're trying to do the Lord's will. And then once he's ruined our peace of mind, then because there's less peace, he can begin to tempt us toward lower things. And so whenever we notice that anxiety, whenever we're trying to persevere in the service of the Lord, we just reject that anxiety. Other things that, there are three other things that are of note that the devil will do. Sadness. He'll afflict us with sadness. 
but it's a sadness with respect to God, to prayer, to the love of others in God, that is to everything involved in the pursuit of God's will. You go to pray that daily rosary, and immediately when you start to do it in the morning, you just notice that you're incredibly sluggish and sad. And so, don't want to do it. But then all of a sudden, to unload the dishwasher seems like the most exciting task of the day. I mean, it's, it's, the dishes are going to be warm, they're going to be clean, you're going to get something done. There's something that's just appealing. There's just this weird, unexplainable sadness toward divine things. And so, um, he says there's nothing saving about this sadness, um, but it will cause us to lose heart. And what it also looks like, Ignatius says to Sister Teresa, is that we cannot pray with devotion, we cannot contemplate, we can't lift our mind to anything, and we cannot speak or hear the things of God without any interior taste, with any interior taste or relish. To listen to, you know, the Catholic podcast or whatever just seems like, just seems annoying. But um, to listen to anything else trivial seems uh, so appealing. Secondly, I mean, thirdly, obstacles. It says that we begin to see the difficulties involved, the problems that we will encounter if we seek spiritual growth. We consider our own weakness, increasingly feeling that we are too weak to overcome the obstacles. The spiritual newness, though attractive in itself, is not attainable for us. So this is what the enemy will ask. How can you continue a life of such great penance, deprived of all satisfaction from friends, relatives, and possessions? You just started Lent. How are you supposed to persevere? It's only been, it hasn't even been a week. Tomorrow is a week. You're supposed to make 40 days, and even after you make 40 days, you're going to stop doing it anyway, so why do it? You, how He tries to bring us to understand that we must lead a life that is longer than it will actually be. By reason of the trials he places before us and which no one ever underwent. So we can just kind of imagine uh, these extra difficult things, you know. It's like, like you prayed, you committed to praying a holy hour every day. Well, that is never going to happen, especially past Lent. It's only going to get more difficult. So just give it up now. And you're doing that now while things are easy. What's going to happen when things are difficult? It's not a worthwhile practice after all, so don't even try. Those are the kind of obstacles. And then finally, uh, to quote St. Augustine, whenever he was trying to break free of the chain of lust, he says this in his Confessions. I was held back by mere trifles, the most paltry inanities, all my old attachments. They plucked at my garment of flesh and whispered, are you going to dismiss us? From this moment, you will never be allowed to do this thing or that forevermore. He says that these voices kept me from tearing myself away, from shaking myself free of them and leaping across the barriers to the other side where you were calling me. And then, lastly, 
what the devil will use is false reasons that disquiet us. So while in the first person, going from mortal sin to mortal sin, the good spirit will use the rational power of judgment to sting our conscience. In the person going from good to better, the evil spirit will use false reasons that disquiet us. So um, this is an example. This is a person going on retreat. That experience I had as I was leaving after my retreat a month ago made quite an impression on me. It certainly took me by surprise. My mind was in such confusion that I couldn't comprehend what was happening to me. I didn't understand how I could feel so bad so fast after feeling so good for so long. On my way home, I was second-guessing my entire retreat, and I felt that due to my failure, it had been a complete waste of time. I figured that I must have had some serious problem, and that maybe I had been dishonest by not bringing it up during the retreat. Since I didn't know what the problem was, I concluded that I was probably incapable of making a good retreat, because I was incapable of being honest and open. The thought came to me that I should not waste your time and mine with these, with these treats. When I thought of calling you about it, I ran into still more obstacles. I felt that I really had no right to bother you after all my retreat was over. If things weren't resolved during the retreat, that was my own fault. So the devil kind of had this woman on a little bit of a carousel. You could imagine you could transfer that experience maybe to... Um, a person making an axe retreat comes back, feels great. After a while, he wakes up one day and just it, everything has vanished. He just wonders, okay, well, what went wrong? Did, did I do something wrong? And maybe the person did. Um, maybe the person stopped praying, you know, and because of that, the Lord withdrew his grace. But what the answer is not is to get caught up in this carousel and then to say, well, I guess none of it's really worth it and that I should just go back to normal living. You could also apply that maybe to confession, that a person would go to confession, feels great, and then a few days later is not feeling so good and then wonders, well, maybe God didn't forgive me. You know, maybe there's something that I just left out that's deep, buried within my subconscious. And then that lie can get in there and say, well, maybe I can never really know what my sin is. And so I can never really feel like God ever really truly forgives me. And then that person can live in shame, feeling like even though they go to confession, God can't truly forgive them because they're not truly aware of the sin that they're holding on to. That kind of false reason will gnaw at us and not allow us to persevere in the service of God, but will have us falling off back towards temptation and shame. So, what does the good spirit do in the person going from good to better? He gives courage and strength. An example, a man has begun to pray with the scriptures daily and finds that his new closeness to the Lord is deepening his love for his wife and children. Happy in this newness, he ceased to grow all the more in prayer and love for his family. 
Then difficulties arise, and he finds himself struggling to persevere in prayer. He becomes increasingly disheartened. But in his discouragement, he turns to prayer and recalls the words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I shall want. These words gently lift his heart, telling him that God's love and grace will always be enough for the task. With a quietly renewed strength, he resolves to continue faithfully in his quest for a growing love of his family and the Lord. So whenever the man going from good to better then lifts his eyes up to the Lord, he's given strength, he's given courage. Also, consolation in tears. Um, that the, the tears of the good spirit are healing, strengthening, and they express the consolation of the heart of God. Consolation as, as in this energizing towards God's service. Person delights very much in doing good works. He delights very much in prayer. Inspirations also, as in mental inspirations, that God will give us spiritual clarity in knowing what it is that we are to do going forward. Um, maybe it's in regards to a relationship that a person needs to uh, forgive, or maybe it's a business decision. Maybe it's um, you know something that would allow God to be glorified within that decision. That. Um, there's going to be an inspiration and the person's heart is going to be lifted up uh, to God. And then finally, a strengthening quiet of heart. Strengthening quiet of heart. The good spirit quiets anxieties and instills peace in the Lord. Um, so, as an example, um, a woman religious has found her sense of God's love and her own love for her religious calling growing over the years. She has many responsibilities in her apostolic mission, and for some times these have been for some time these have been a source of anxiety for her. But though her responsibilities have not diminished, this year in prayer she asks she experiences a growing sense of surety that the Lord is with her in the task. She's become less anxious and experiences a deepening peace that helps her find the Lord, even in the midst of such activity. And then finally, it's just the taking away of all obstacles. Um, so, another example. A dedicated woman has begun to doubt that she will ever grow closer to the Lord in the way that she desires. She feels stuck. She has tried, but finds herself failing again and again in the same habitual ways. But then, one morning, her kid smiles, and it reveals afresh to her God's faithful love. Later in the day, a moment of joy and prayer assures her once again of God's saving power at work in her. She senses now that the obstacles are not insurmountable, and that for God all things are possible. New hope springs up within her, that with God's grace she will overcome such obstacles and go forward in doing good. And so all these obstacles are taken away because of the virtue of hope. All right. So now pressing forward, the next two rules, we just talked about how the good spirit and evil spirit work in a person going from mortal sin to mortal sin, and how the good and evil spirit work in a person going from good to better. The next two rules have to do with spiritual consolation and spiritual desolation. Uh, Ignatius, next time, two weeks from now, we'll talk about spiritual desolation. Ignatius talks 
way more about spiritual desolation because when you're spiritual consolation, you just stay the course. But spiritual desolation is is another animal. But let's first talk about spiritual consolation. What is it? It's not simply a good feeling. For Ignatius, and it's and it's not simply a virtue either. He ties both the sentimentality and the virtue together beautifully. I call it consolation when some interior movement is caused in the soul, through which the soul comes to be inflamed with love of its creator and Lord, and, consequently, when it can love no created thing on the face of the earth in itself, but only in the creator of them all. Likewise, when it sheds tears that move to love of its Lord, whether out of sorrow for one's sins, or the passion of Christ our Lord, or because of other things directly ordered to his service and praise. Finally, I call consolation every increase of faith, hope, faith, and charity, and all interior joy that calls and attracts to heavenly things, to the salvation of one's soul, quieting it and giving it peace in its creator and Lord. So he calls it an increase of hope, faith, and charity, but he also acknowledges that our heart should be inflamed with love of everything only in God, so that I only love things insofar as they help me to obtain God. That is what the movement of consolation does within my heart. And for Ignatius, the spiritual life is about staying in consolation. We may have heard consolation and desolation in different, uh, under different traditions, where basically we might say like, oh, well, consolation is nice, but it's not really necessary. It's just a nice feeling. For the tradition of St. Ignatius, basically consolation is necessary. Consolation is about having faith, hope, and love. And the effect of that faith, hope, and love is to have a love of all things in the Creator and that my heart is inflamed with love for God, my Creator. It's not simply uh, just to feel good about um, one's relationship with God. So, some of the forms of spiritual consolation. So, a, a woman, let's say, that the spiritual ex- this spiritual experience lasts for a time, and its spiritual benefit remains when the experience itself is passed. So, like, the actual, like, a, a moment of consolation might only be a moment. You know, might only be for the duration of, like, a, a period of prayer. But, like Ignatius, who reads the lives of the saints and puts it down, though the words have passed, what remains is his love for sanctity. So, for instance, a woman would attempt, would attempt to pray with the Psalms and persevere in the midst of distractions. She encounters a phrase that speaks to her heart and assures her that God is with her in her struggles. And her heart warms with a sense of God's uh, faithful love for her. And for, so for this reason, that an experience of consolation could differ in duration and intensity. Um, some might be felt for just a brief moment. Others may endure for several days or weeks 
at a time. Goes on saying that, um, consequently, it can love no created thing on the face of the earth in itself, but only in the creator of them all. And so what ends up happening is that because we are inflamed with divine love, our love for all other things harmonize around the central love for God. He gives another example. A young man clearly senses God's call to ordain ministry and is pursuing his theological training in the seminary. This is a seminarian. Something within him, however, remains attached to the places and persons he has left in order to pursue God's call. He misses home. One day he spends an hour in the seminary chapel in prayer. As he prays, his heart is inflamed with love of its creator and Lord. He feels God very close to him and senses a deep response of love for God, well up in his heart in return. He knows with utter clarity that God's love is what his heart most deeply desires. Within the experience, he senses a new freedom regarding his attachment to all he has left behind. He's not as homesick. His love for those places and persons is no less strong, but now he can love them in the God whole love he perceives so profoundly. He doesn't feel like God is taking those things, his friends and family, his way. He's able to love his friends and family for the sake of God. Um, And now his love of such created things ceases to burden his response to God's call. And so it's not that he doesn't love the created things anymore. It's not like the man who starts praying just decides, well, these created things, such as my wife and my kids, are keeping me from God. No, he loves his wife and his kids within God. He now serves his wife and his kids within God. So this is what is, uh, is what spiritual consolation does. It would be more of the tactic of the devil to say, well, it's my family that's pulling me away from these things. And what is the devil doing? He's biting, he's saddening, he's disquieting, he's gnawing so that um, there's actually less of a service that's happening. Um, and then he talks about how you know tears are shed toward love of his Lord. And then he says that um, consolation is every increase of hope, faith, and charity. So, again, that means that consolation is not a feeling. Um, it includes a feeling, but it's primarily a virtue. Um, and a virtue is a good habitual disposition. That is, it's done over and over and over again, like, like a habit. So faith, hope, and love. So, as an example, say a man of faith is at prayer. He seeks to turn his heart towards God, but finds himself battling distractions with little consciousness of God's presence to him. Then he recalls the promise of Jesus. Behold, I am with you always. As he reflects on these words, his heart lifts with a vivid sense of God's personal closeness to him as now he prays. At this moment, something changes in his experience of faith. A faith-based conviction of God's presence has constantly been operative in him and has sustained him even in his distracted prayer. Now, however, there is a perceptible increase of his faith. He battled within that session of prayer to increase in faith. He made an act of faith. And for that, his consolation 
increases. And if you were to examine his experience in prayer, this man can identify the moment when his increase of faith began. His experience before he prays with the words of Jesus, I am with you always, is different from his experience after praying with these words. Before he prays with the words, I am with you always, his faith is real, but it's less felt. But after he prays with them, he is conscious of a livelier sense of faith in God's presence. That also, just as a side note, means that when we go to pray, that we are actively meditating, and that there's not a whole lot noble in just going to pray and saying, see, I stuck it out, good for me, I stuck out 30 minutes. That, no, when we go to pray within that session of prayer, we should be striving for an increase of faith, hope, and love. I should be striving for that increase of that uh, perceptible growth in those virtues. Sometimes we can get um, kind of old in the spiritual life and just say, well, as long as I'm doing the things, it doesn't matter what I feel at all. But there should be, if there's real conversion happening, then it should touch my heart as well. And then it should give us an interior joy that attracts us to heavenly things. So it, the joy refreshes the heart, doesn't drag it down or surround it with anxiety. We should be moving upward towards the things of God. And then lastly, in the last 10 minutes, we have the rule of spiritual desolation. So basically, what is spiritual desolation? What does it do? I call desolation all the contrary to the third rule, such as darkness of soul, disturbance in the soul, movement to low and earthly things, disquiet from various agitations and temptations, moving to lack of confidence without hope, without love, finding oneself totally slothful, tepid, sad, and as if separated from one's creator and lord. For just as consolation is contrary to desolation, in the same way, the thoughts that come from consolation are contrary to the thoughts that come from desolation. So the feeling is this movement down towards low and earthly things. The vice, not the virtue, the vice is sloth. So spiritual, and particularly spiritual sloth. So an indifference and a laziness towards spiritual things. And so what are some of the things that um, it does? First, it depletes energy for living and following God's will. We just don't feel like doing God's will. We're just indifferent. Uh, this is desolation. And with all this, again, whenever we have consolation, we should accept it. When we notice the movement of desolation, we reject it. We don't just, just passively accept it. We have to actively reject it. So first, darkness of soul. A feeling of being helplessly trapped in confusion, unable to comprehend what is occurring spiritually. We just have the sense that things are going badly for us, and they will continue to worsen. Disturbance in it. The enemy tries to upset you and interfere with your peace of mind. Simple. 
But then, because there is that discouragement and that disturbance in it, what do we do? We say, well, it's not worth it to pursue the Lord, and so there's not a movement up toward creative things, I mean, up towards heavenly things, but rather a movement to low and earthly things. So we feel no attraction to prayer and to God's service, but we are drawn toward stuff, material comforts, gratification of the body in various ways, memories of such things from the past, immersion in empty trivia, diversion through the media, the internet, busyness, superficial conversation, and similar and similar occupations. One of the, the marquees, like in the, in, um, the old um, monasteries, like for St. John Cashman, like these first kind of pioneers in, um, in desert spirituality, was that the monk who was slothful, and then slothful, you know, not pursuing the Lord, was just a gossip. Like, a lot of times, the sin of gossip is just an expression of sloth, because we don't want to change what's within our own world, but we can talk about someone else's. And so, um, it's not simply, uh, for, a, for a man, he might be more tempted to, you know, the TV, the internet, the whatever else. And then for a woman, she might be more tempted towards the superficial conversation, the other things, just because the nature of man is much more isolated and the nature of woman is much more relational. It's like, these, this might be the way in which these are expressed. Um, and so, uh, an example of this, uh, living out in someone. So John, let's say, feels lonely. And he finds that he has no desire for his customary prayer. He'd rather postpone it or simply omit it. He considers watching TV or surfing the internet, and the thought seems to welcome him. These things, long distasteful to him, now attract him again. Also, disquiet from various agitations and temptations. Every little thing throughout the day seems to cause agitation and further separation from God. Everything just like, you know, being at the traffic light just seems to just wreck us and tear us apart. So, an example, Helen goes about the work day feeling sad, far from God, unable to focus in prayer or feel any interest in spiritual matters. As the day wears on the heaviness, uh, increases. She continues her activity, but her heart churns with upsetting, agitated stirrings. She finds herself tempted to avoid prayer, to give her up her ongoing effort to love a difficult family member, to allow herself to speak sharply to another. She is tempted also to seek certain gratifications that she knows from long experience will only increase her sense of heaviness. A great example of this that just hit me, I knew I was, I was like, when am I going to use, like God is going to have to use this experience today for something. I must have spent 48 minutes trying to recover a Venmo password today that just drove me crazy. And I knew that it was, you know, it, it could have been one of those things that just put me in a funk for the rest of the day that just made me resentful about wanting to persevere in the Lord's, uh, in the Lord's will and rather just be discouraged. These kinds of things can be coupled exteriorly, these things, 
with this kind of desolate, you know, um, this desolate feeling. And then what happens to Helen, as we saw in the example? Uh, She ends up giving up prayer. She's sharper. She's just more cutting towards the people in her family. Well, that's all movements of desolation. Moving to lack of confidence. So questions arise. You think you've grown in love of God, but look at you now. You're unable to pray, thinking just such kinds of thoughts. You're mean to your family. You're just, you've just been fooling yourself. You were so sure of God's love for you. Where is that closeness now? How can God love someone who fails as repeatedly as you do? You've been at this for so long and you still struggle to stay faithful. You felt so convinced of your calling. Now you feel helpless to move forward in it. How can you be so confident that you will read well the signs of God's will when you chose this calling? Then we find ourselves um, as totally slothful, tepid, and sad. The heart is distant and unengaged. And, and once what was our greatest cause of joy, the spiritual life, now becomes our greatest source of heaviness. It just seems like such a burden to go and keep up those spiritual practices that we took up during Lent. It once caused us great joy, but now it causes us great heaviness. Again, this is desolation, and we simply reject the movement when it comes. And then lastly, desolation will have us feel as if we are separated from our Creator and Lord. And we can identify ourselves with our feelings, such as these, before going through these feelings, I just want to say that. Um, for Ignatius as well, there is this reality of spiritual desolation and non-spiritual desolation, and that non-spiritual desolation can, if unaddressed, become spiritual desolation. So, as the example, the recovering the Venmo password, the 48-minute futile task, that, like this, could easily, if left unaddressed and unaware, become this non-spiritual desolation, you know, being stuck in traffic, can become spiritual desolation, if not dealt with rightly. And so the same can be said of spiritual consolation as well, that maybe like the mother that we saw had the child smile at her, that that non-spiritual consolation was then related to God and became spiritual consolation. That from the smiling child, from the wonderful weather, um, that there's this awakening, this awareness that God is present. But uh, back to the last point about uh, how desolation can cause us to feel separated from our Creator and Lord. So we identify ourselves with our feelings, and such feelings and thoughts arise like this. You are now feeling a movement toward low and earthly things, which means this is the kind of person you are, one made for low and earthly things. You're too weak to overcome what holds you back from God. You are troubled by various agitations and temptations of this day. This is who you are, a person without spiritual peace, unable to rise above temptation. You do not feel as if you love prayer. Therefore, 
You are not a person who loves prayer. You feel separated from God, and thus you are separated from God. These, again, are the movements of desolation, which need to be rejected. So let's close um, with a glory be, thanking God for the awareness that he's uh, shared with us tonight. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Saint Ignatius of Loyola, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.